Oh, oh yes, I had this terrible nightmare last night. Yeah, I, you were there. I dreamt that we were that that we were hosting a horror movie podcast, and we had to watch Nightmare on Elm Street. Really? And it That's was... strange because I had the same dream. Oh, you also dreamt that we were podcast hosts, and was was there a film that we had to watch with a burn man, evil monster thing with a claw <laughs> hand thing? It's like you're reading my mind. Yeah, it's, it's the bit over yet. <laughs> I bid you welcome. I want to play a game. Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moves. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. Let them see what kind of a person I am. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Hey folks, my name is Will. My name is Yaz. And welcome to the Monster Monday podcast. This is the weekly podcast where myself and Yaz talk about a horror film every single week. And Yaz, why do we talk about horror films? Because the monsters in film aren't as scary as the monsters in real life. And I was really happy when The Wheel chose this film last week. We were going to be talking about the original 1984 and Nightmare on Elm Street. And one reason I was very happy to have this one was because this Christmas just gone, the lovely Yaz here... Uh, got me a Blu-ray box set collection of all of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, sans the remake, and we were able to watch uh, all the all the selections from that. So I was very happy to get out that uh, new box set with lots of special features and stuff and cards and mm-hmm. memorabilia. Exactly, because home media is forever. You know, don't you know? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know all that stuff in the news recently about. Have you heard about that lawsuit where Apple may have to defend? whether or not you actually own something or if you're just renting it for an extended period of time. And if they lose that lawsuit, it could change how digital distribution works in the next 100 years, basically. So, yeah, basically, just buy Blu-ray or DVD or 4K, whatever your format is of choice. Anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Um, Speaking of another tangent, Mm -hmm. um, it is absolutely by coincidence that we are focusing on Nightmare on Elm Street, considering the um, drama that kind of happened mm. in the community. I say drama. Um, it was a case of gatekeeping, which is not. Oh, it's not cool. It's yeah. not okay. Exactly. Cause... In 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 the community, we should all be sticking up for each other. Yeah. Nobody owns the rights to any name at all. Mm-hmm. Um. So sending our Love and solidarity to podcasts and Nightmare on Fear Street and Nightmare on Fifth Street. It's it's interesting looking back on this like over forty years later after it's come out, because this is a film that really upped the horror slasher genre from where it was only only like a decade prior. You've got films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, which we've talked about on this podcast before. The idea of this uh, this masked killer, uh, this almost like silent, voiceless type uh, who stalks and kills people. And you get that built upon a bit further for Friday the 13th. By the time Nightmare on Elm Street comes out, Friday the 13th had its quote-unquote final chapter with part four. So this is more trying to give a shot in the arm to the subgenre with more supernatural elements. And who better to do that than Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left. Did he direct them? I thought he just wrote them. He directed and wrote them. And and also edited them. 
as well because he, he's a guy who doesn't he's mess. quite the auteur exactly I mean <laughs> and, and you know you sort of get that guerrilla filmmaking sense and not only because Wes Craven left his career in academia to have a much more lucrative career writing and directing pornography films so that was kind of how he first actually cut his teeth on uh, on filmmaking uh, this is a guy he's, he's a couple of films deep into his filmography he's doing horror but he's always had this this one special idea in mind uh, an idea that he initially came up with when he read a, a series of articles in the Los Angeles Times where there were uh, these disconnected groups of uh, Southeast Asian refugees uh, from the Hmong tribe who, uh, you know, it's completely separate from each other. They weren't in the same proximity, but they would have these nightmares and they, they were so afraid of what was happening in these nightmares that they'd do whatever they could to stay awake for prolonged periods of time. One scene in this film that was directly inspired by that is one of the the men. He had a he had a coffee pot. Oh yeah, under... we don't really have them in the UK. Um... At least not. They're not as widely. So you, you do get them in the UK, but they are more like a coffee office space. Yeah, stuff, Com aren't they? communal enthusiast yeah. stuff. Yeah, but we don't really have it where it's like the jug of coffee on a. Is it like a hot plate? Well, because I've worked on um, shows and films and stuff with like American people who have no idea how to respond to a kettle because they don't have kettles in America. Or at least predominantly they don't have kettles in America. Yeah. So they, they put stuff on their hob or on their cooker. Yeah. They, they don't have a designated kettle, which is very which is random to us, but it's just a cultural difference. Anyway, one of these guys, he had an extension cord with a coffee pot underneath his bed so so he could just drink from it and stay awake. And he would go to sleep, the family would be downstairs, they'd hear screaming, they'd hear him yelling out and crying out, and he's now he's dead. And it was just this unexplained phenomenon that was happening to some of these people, which was um, later dubbed Asian Death Syndrome, but is now considered to be called uh, Brugada Syndrome. That's what it's called now. Uh, like heart palpitations in your sleep, irregular activity, emotional uh, anxiety and things like that. It's still, uh, it's still kind of considered a very unknown field as to why that stuff happened. But in terms of basing a film about, you know, you've, you don't want to go to sleep. There's something after you in your sleep. And if you die in your dream, you die in real life. It's, well, yeah. that is kind of the most terrifying thought isn't it i mean there are times when i've kept myself awake because i've had a really horrible nightmare and i don't want to go back into it so. yeah yeah whereas i get annoyed when i wake up i was having a really good dream and you try and go to sleep and try and force that dream to restart <laughs> and it never works so yeah it's a really interesting um concept as well and it also gives this film like that that supernatural edge but still something that's grounded in reality like everyone has a common association with dreams or sleeping or you know these in-between states as well where the body can act very in very strange ways like sleepwalking or sleep paralysis etc and because we had these masked killers you know michael myers jason voorhees leatherface etc wes craven wanted to do something a bit more unique where the face is the mask as in it will be a burn victim's face somebody who is still able to emote and be expressive and still you'll be able to see the light in their eyes and they'll be able to emote and talk and communicate properly. So that that's something that sets apart Freddy from many of his contemporaries at the time. And the look of Freddy as well. Sorry, were you going to say something? I was just going to say how iconic the makeup is. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Mm, because it, it's something that really allows actor Robert England to 
you know, he's he's a very inhumane character, but you still get to see the humanity behind him. He's not restricted at all by the makeup. Well, no, you shouldn't be if it's actual makeup. I mean, masks are different. Mm -hmm. So they use prosthetics. So that's why you can see that he can emote properly, he can move his mouth and everything flows like a normal face. Mm. Um yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Incredible. What an iconic design. Yeah, and it, going back to the real, like the real life inspirations, Wes Craven tells this story numerous times about like he was ten years old and he was looking out of his window and this uh, this drunk man is just walking down the street and then he just all of a sudden just turns around, looks over his shoulder and looks directly at him, as if like he knew he was there watching him from the window and he just like hides under the window ledge and just stays there and he, he, he would peek up every so often and the guy is still there looking at him and like he just hides out of sight for like 10-15 minutes just afraid to look over the the window ledge and that that look that strange unknown person presumably in los angeles that night inspired the demeanor and the look for freddy krueger isn't that where the hat comes from he was wearing a hat similar to that yeah i think that's where that comes from as well and the jumper, the the red and green, was inspired by an article he read in Scientifica America where they said that red and green, those two particular shades, were the least like appealing to the human eye. Like they, they didn't contrast well with each other, so it made it look very unappealing to the retina. So he decided that's going to be the colour of what he's wearing. I mean, this this film and the character designs and also, it's just full of genius ideas, absolutely pure genius mm. but it almost didn't happen because this was a script this was an idea that he had that was being thrown around different studios for several years until the uh the little known indie company new line cinema decided to pick it up they'd only distributed a handful of films and the majority of them were just for home media this was their first foray into proper cinema distribution and New Line Cinema, we now know them for films like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, and they're a subsidiary of Warner Brothers now. But the the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise really was their first proper cinematic hit, their box office hit, which allowed them to establish themselves. But we'll touch on that a little bit later. But this is a film where it had a budget of just over a million dollars, and... Because uh, I think, for some reason, I guess I thought on this film as just a, a very, like, low-budget, um, like, sort of guerrilla-type film. And I think that's how they made it. But this film does actually have incredibly ambitious ideas in terms of its execution. Things like very elaborate set designs, right, revolving sets. I mean, considering sets. its budget, I think they did fucking amazing. Yeah, I think it was, they had money, but they didn't have time. That, that was the main thing. They had the money to put together a film like this, but they had to do it in like just over 30 days. For 32 it. days. They were able to get the money in the end. They did have some production companies who were going to put forward a lot of money to get the film made. They dropped out last minute, so producer Robert Shea had to essentially fundraise and you know accumulate the the money from elsewhere and i think to this day the the actors and west craven have no idea how he got the money for <laughs> it but he somehow made it work when they ran out of money later on down the line he had line producer uh, john h borrows just using his credit card to make sure that the crew got paid which you know i'm glad that he made sure that they did get paid uh, but you know the film did end up getting made it did get over the finish line 
So let's not uh, waste any more time. Let's dive into A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, for whatever reason, you might not have seen. Do we do spoilers and non-spoilers for this one? No. Uh, okay, we'll just dive into A Nightmare on Elm Street. This is a nearly like 40-year-old film. So spoiler warning for this incredibly iconic, brilliant film. So the movie opens with footage of Fred Krueger putting together and assembling his glove in his boiler room. Um, and we also get to meet our main cast of characters. The first one we properly meet is uh, Tina Gray, played by Amanda Weiss. And this film's doing something similar to films like Psycho, where we follow her for the first act. And we think, oh, this is the protagonist of the film. This this Nancy character who she's hanging around with is just is just a supportive friend, and it's going to be Tina who we're following. But no, we 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 get we get rid of Tina relatively early on in the film in in a in an incredibly elaborate and impressive death sequence. But yeah, we also meet Nancy, played by Heather Langenkamp. We've got Rod Lane, played by Nick Corey. And let's also not forget that we've got Glenn Lance, here played by Johnny Depp in his first ever film role. And there was a funny story about how they decided to choose uh, Johnny Depp for this casting. Who was who was the final, who got the <laughs> final say in this decision, Yes. Um, so one of Wiz Craven's daughters, um... <laughs> was like, please cast him, he's so dreamy. Yeah. Um, so he got the part. I mean, she's, she's not wrong, he is very dreamy. And the, what I discovered, um, just doing some research for this film, is that Johnny Depp, he didn't want to do an acting career at first. He, he just went to the audition to um, accompany a friend, somebody who was there to audition. Do you want to know who that actor was? Jackie Earl Haley, former child star in the 70s and the 80s, one of the biggest actors around, had a massive career renaissance in the uh, 21st century in Watchmen and in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake as Freddy Krueger. <laughs> That's Jackie Full Earl. circle. Exactly. Time is... What is time anyway? We don't, we don't even know. I mean, I mean, you know, the new one gets slated a lot, but I don't think it's that bad. He's good in it, Jackie He's Earl Haley. He's great in it. Um, and it's the makeup's more realistic. Yeah. So he doesn't look like Freddy. But I mean, if you're gonna remake it, you can't have exactly the same makeup, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You, you... Everybody wants to put their own stamp on it, don't they? Yeah. But it just didn't work as well as what we now know as the icon because he became such an iconic character. Yeah. Um. And also, have I told you the story about how I saw... So, what year did... This was 2010. The yeah, 2010. 2010, 2011. So, I left school at the age of 16 mm -hmm. in 2009. This film was an 18. Mm -hmm. And it came, <laughs> it came out in 2010. Yeah. I think I just had my... So, you were 16 or 17? 17th birthday. I think I just had my 17th birthday. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't actually look... I didn't look very old at yeah. the time. Um, and 
we des me and my friends desperately wanted to see the new remake. Mm. And so I shouldn't be giving you tips on how to do this. It's very <laughs> naughty. Um, one of our friends got her dad to go to the cinema to buy two tickets for Nightmare on Elm Street earlier on in the day. Mm-hmm. So we all knew what screening it would be in. Yeah. And the rest of us bought tickets to Hot Tub Time Machine <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was showing at the same time. Now, we gave the Nightmare on Elm Street tickets to the people who looked the oldest in the group. Mm-hmm. And they got through and we were like, oh, okay, this might actually work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we go in with our tickets and we go to the toilets. And then as we come out the toilets, we just go into the <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street screen and instead of <laughs> Hot Tub Time Machine. And as I was walking up the stairs, I remember hearing somebody go, they don't look old enough to be in here. And I was like, shitting my pants well, for been, the rest of the film. We've been rumbled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was shitting myself for the rest of the film. I think that was scarier than the actual film. <laughs> Just sat there hoping we don't get kicked out. Yeah, the, the remake, I think, actually borrows a bit too much from the original. It tries to recreate many scenes, including the scene where Freddy is um, above Nancy's bed going through the wall. Like, it's all CGI and he melts with the wallpaper and his claws come out and it's, it looks a bit pants, really. The, I think the practical effects in the original just just make it. it. Yeah. Watching a documentary on how they made some of these effects happen is just mind-blowing. Mm. It is pure genius. Yeah, it's great as well because it's in the mid-80s so they, they have access to quite a lot of B-roll. So you can see that in the scene when Nancy was in the bathtub there was just another man in the bathtub with her so the claw could come out of the water. And yeah, that it, was awkward. And it's, it's like, okay, I don't th- see how else they would have done it. I don't know what I was expecting. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Ma- it makes sense. It's just like, if he can't properly see and he's got the real claws on, what yeah. if he like accidentally caught her with these claws? Well, good job he didn't. That didn't happen. So nah. we don't need to um, catastrophize on that. <laughs> but anyway. But yeah, the gr- and the great scene when... Freddy is going through Nancy's wall and it's it's just a sheet of spandex above the bed. Incredible. Uh, with just like really like particular lighting as he like presses his way through it and then comes back. It's it looks really cool. Even what, to this day. What was he listed as? Is it the mechanical um effects guy? Is that what they listed him as? Um actually was it Doyle or something? Special effects designer Jim Doyle. Yes. Yeah, he he, now, he played he, Freddy in that shot. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. His work and his team, absolutely outstanding. Yeah. When they create... I didn't... I always wondered how they managed to get Tina to fly across the ceiling. Yeah. So I, my initial theory was that underneath her pyjamas were just like sheets of metal and they just had really large cartoon magnets. Uh, like, you know, from Roadrunner <laughs> cartoons. And they were like trying to move her around the set. Because I knew the house itself was a set. It's how she's able to walk up the stairs and there's porridge mix or whatever in the staircase. Uh, I knew that stuff. But the actual way that they did that effect and actually seeing the pictures of it on the Blu-ray blew my mind. It's absolutely incredible. 
I mean, of course it makes sense when you see, you see how they've done it, but I just assumed that she was wearing wires or something, or I, I genuinely, I don't know how I thought they did it. And then seeing how they actually did it, it was just incredible. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, the, the Tina's death is, it is the, like, psycho uh, shower scene equivalent, where you think you've got the lead character of the film, but they get killed by, before the end of the first act, basically. And what happens is that she's, she's had a couple of encounters in a dream with, with Freddy Krueger, and she has another one. And we don't actually see what's happening in the dream, but you see her, like, thrashing around in the bed. Um, her boyfriend um, it takes the covers off her, like, is, is woken up by the this night terror that she seems to be having. And then she's, like, thrown against the wall. She's picked up, and she's, like, being dragged up the wall, like, into the corner of the room. And you see Rod in the corner of the room as well, like, reaching out to her as well in the same shot. And what they did for that shot was that they built this this massive rig basically for this room which would rotate you'd have people basically pushing this set on this pivot so it would be able to twist and turn and so that they could get the shot where rod is reaching out to him they'd like bolt him to the set yeah he's strapped into the yeah. set and he's actually upside down yeah. in that shot they matted his hair so and the, ca- and the cameraman is yes. also upside. upside down. Yes. So he's strapped in with his camera too. There's Rod sat there strapped in. And they put so much hair spray and hair lacquer on his hair so that it wouldn't move. It did the job. They must have yeah. used a fuck ton of hairspray on, yeah. on him. See, I thought that um, it might have just been a split diopter thing or they might have had him on a blue screen set or something to get that shot. But no, he's at, it's done in camera. And it's really incredible. Incredible. So, yeah, it's so. Good. I don't think you'd get away with those regulations now. Well, they maybe not to that extent, but you see films that have taken inspiration from. I don't know if it was the first one. Oh no, it wasn't the first one to do it. They cited a Fred Astaire film where he's dancing on the ceiling. That was probably the first time they did it. But you see films like Inception, like 10 years ago with Christopher Nolan, who likes to do everything practically, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt is having the fight in that revolving corridor. And like the amount of like timing and practice that has to be done to make that happen. But this film, no, we've got 32 days Today, to film it. Go, yeah. go, go, go. <laughs> uh, but it was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They also used that uh, revolving set to get the blood effect for Glenn's death as well. Like, we're going straight into spoilers, of course, but uh, when he's pulled Arguably into the bed... Arguably the best kill it, yeah, it, in the film for me. That yeah. is the one that I always... Re- I mean, you remember most of them, but that is the one that always sticks out in my mind. Yeah, it's and it's the lead-up to it is great as well, because you've got the, the phone calls of Nancy and Glenn from across the street because they're neighbours, and she's like, don't fall asleep, which is the iconic line. Glenn falls asleep, of course, um, and he's dragged into the bed by uh, Freddy's clawed hand, his arm drags him into the bed, and then you get the geyser of blood that they turned the set upside down and just poured, like... Hundreds of gallons of like food coloured like water with red food colouring. Almost like they caused a blackout on the set because they had it slightly aligned wrong and it got to the electrics and no one was hurt. But <laughs> they, they were able to. That's how they did it. Made it go upside down. 
And when the police react to the scene afterwards, they're like, oh, where's the coroner? Oh, he's, he's just in the back room, just puking after seeing that. It's like, yep, makes, makes sense. I would suggest that the coroner needs a different career he, change. He, well, for, for firstly, he needs a mop, because that's just the... <laughs> it's, there's, there's no body. There's, there's just the blood. Uh, yeah, it's it's and that was it's, it's inspired by Stephen King's The Shining, uh, the Stanley yeah, the, the Stanley Kubrick with the, film. Um, the elevator with all the uh, blood coming out. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really really impressive. <laughs> Well, let's. Uh, I want to talk uh, briefly about um, Heather Langenkamp's Nancy. Um, of course, it's, this film is. It walks in in the long line, the long tradition of casting actors who are well into their twenties who are playing fifteen to sixteen year olds. She doesn't look out of place, though. She looks. Yeah. She looks very young. Yeah, but I thought she was really like. I think it's a really underrated performance. I think she does stand like shoulder to shoulder with your Jamie Lee Curtis with your Jamie Lee Curtis with your like your your final girl slasher icons i think nancy is really good and there's the great scene before glenn's death where she's trying to ring ring him from across the across the road rips the cord out oh what if he tries to ring me back and she's going to leave the room and then the phone rings again i'm your boyfriend now nancy <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, and it's just this like weird prosthetic at the end of the the phone. If 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 prosthetic's the right word for it, it's like um, a, it's no, like it's a, just more of a prop, isn't it? Okay, it's yeah. just a prop. It's a prop, like puppet thing with like wires and cables and stuff. Yeah. And uh, apparently, um, Heather, apparently Heather loved that prop so much she wanted to take it home, much to the confusion of the production team. I don't know if she ever did. Oh, that would be a cool prop to take home, though. I that, don't blame her. That would be cool. Uh, yeah, I think Nancy's really cool, really good in this film. Uh, and she had a lot of... Um, I think she had a lot of good chemistry with um, uh, Ronnie Blakely, who plays her, her mother, Marge, as well. And they got, they got along really well behind the scenes when they... Uh, cast the two they actually had them go out like dress shopping and go out um, spending some time with each other before they started shooting so that they actually did have a bit of a mother-daughter bond which i thought i think it really shines through and you've got john saxon as the dad as well who's the police chief who doesn't believe what's going on who's um i'll take everyone's word for it apparently he was quite a heartthrob back in the day oh come on he yeah. looks quite good looking still not my type of guy but if that's for you then you know what you if if you like a man in uniform, if you like a sheriff, if you like no, no, no. You, I think it's more old man in it. Yeah? Or, or, or is this a whole old man, but he wears the gun holster to bed type thing? That is that the type of thing that you that people are into? I am no one to judge. He's quite handsome still. He's alright. He's alright. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a really good cast and a random cast uh, at one point when Nancy goes to a facility where they try to like monitor her brain activity when she's asleep. You've got the nurse who's played by Wes Craven's then wife, Mimi Craven. And you've also got Charles Fleischer as Dr. King. Do you know the name Charles Fleischer? Do you know what he's predominantly famous for? The voice of Roger Rabbit. Oh. Which is a bit random. No, I no? would never have got that in a million years. I thought you'd be impressed by that. <laughs> about that random trivia. Do you know what films I like? <laughs> Not Roger Rabbit, apparently. <laughs> Not Looney Tunes. Um, 
But I think let's let's talk about the iconic the uh, they've tried to replace him, didn't really work. So the irreplaceable Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Yeah. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> Please God. This is God. Because this is such an incredible performance. He's only on screen for about seven or eight minutes. I think that's the official tally. They tried to get actors like Kane Hodder to play him, but the scheduling didn't work out and they wanted someone who was maybe a bit leaner as well. And it's someone who has fully embraced the typecasting that this performance has kind of given them because that's the main thing that robert england is known for but he's really leaned into it what did you think yeah of i was surprised to see that he had a career in comedy before this mm. um i mean obviously freddie does have some comedic elements to him but yeah like his portrayal is this horrible character this horror icon He's, uh, it's incredible, isn't it? You can't picture him as anything else other than Freddy, can you? Yeah, exactly. And it's it's something that they they lean into the comedic sensibilities in future films and even Wes Craven's New Nightmare where they've got Robert England playing himself, playing himself as this comedic Freddy and then playing like the darker, more evil Freddy. So it's, it's a really fun meta performance in that film, but we'll get to that another day. But yeah, and Robert England is... He is he's he is funny and sometimes in a really disturbing way as well. Like there's some scenes where he'll just he'll just chop off his fingers just to like laugh <laughs> laugh at it happening and he'll he'll slice himself open and there's like maggots coming out. It's, it's he's basically depicting this character who is like the king of this dimension, this weird dreamscape that he's in, and he he likes reveling in that and you get the sense that he's having fun and it's a bit infectious even though. He is a child killer and you don't really want to be like not on his side but you don't you don't want to be enjoying it but you can't help it yeah yeah he's kind of likable even though he's this horrific murderer yeah um but in in the newer film they because he was originally a child molester yes it, the, and then they changed it in the original film to be a child murderer mm. Something to do with, was it censorship or was well, it... There, um, there were a few um, high-profile like child molestation cases in Los Angeles in the 1980s. So Wes Craven didn't want to be seen uh, capitalising on that. Oh, yes. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I th th this film was also censored to Helen Bath as well. But the reason for him picking a child molester is because, I mean, honestly, what is worse? What You can't think of anything worse than somebody that is like yeah. that. Um, so that is the complete nightmare, isn't it? Somebody like that. But they tone, they definitely, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, they change into just a child murderer. I mean, not just, I mean, child murderers are yeah, yeah, fucking but, terrible too, obviously, but. Yeah. And like you, like you were saying, the remake, um, actually did adopt that revised story. Yeah. And it goes a lot deeper into him being a paedophile. Um, and I think that made a lot of people uncomfortable because we've grown to know, and love this character. Yeah. And um, yes, we understand he's a child murderer, but to add the fact that he was a monster mm. 
as a still a monster. Do you understand why? Oh, <laughs> is no, this no, making no. any sense? Yeah, it... A monster on top of being a murderer. Yeah. Because to do that to a it's... child is just beyond all yeah, it's an comprehension. Es- yeah, it's an especially like incredible depravity. That yeah. I most people would never even be able to consider or wrap their head around for like which is a good thing of course but yeah and for the because what this and the remake have in common as well is the idea of you know it's it's the sins of of the past like the quote-unquote sins where you've got the parents who enact vigilante justice against fred krueger while he's alive Uh, because in this one they were he was like killing children so they arrest him but due to some weird administrative error like uh something was like signed in the wrong place or the wrong form was filled out he's just allowed to go free but the problem with that is that shit happens yeah it has happened in the past mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's happened like, in the uk but it has happened in america yeah um, yeah, and, and you know you've also got double jeopardy, so we wouldn't be able to be tried again. Mm. That's why you get this little vigilante group um, of the parents deciding that they need to take things into their own hand um, to get justice and to stop their children being killed. But inadvertently, well, they they cause the death of their own children. Yeah, it's and the fact that they know about freddy krueger because of course they were the ones who they they burnt his workshop down in, uh, and him and him yeah <laughs> well, yeah while well, he was inside it of course the <laughs> the original draft of the script was that um they would burn the the workshop down and fred krueger would still be alive he'd like come out of the building on fire and then it would be nancy's mum who would like shoot him and like do the the coup de grace so that's why he targets nancy specifically um, and in the remake, it's they it's something very similar, except it's they did he molested the the kids on Elm Street, and the kids managed to repress what happened, and he's like going out for revenge because he claims that he didn't do it, but then the film cops out and it turns out he did do it. So it was kind of an idea that I think they had the idea in drafts, and they they just didn't really follow through with it. But they, they, he still got killed, didn't he? He was yeah, yeah. still killed and burnt alive and everything. Yeah, vigilante um, justice, but. The idea, there's the mystery as to whether or not they killed an innocent person, but then it turns out, no, it's Fred Krueger, and he's, no, he actually did those things. Yeah. Which is a bit of a cop-out for the film, I think. I mean, I could understand if, like, he didn't actually do them, and they did murder this innocent person, and then all of a sudden he's getting revenge. That's a cool horror story. I think the remake takes it too dark. There's no comedic elements in it. There's none of the light relief. Yeah. That you get within the first one, which makes the first one so enjoyable and mm. so um, appealing to so many different people. It's hard to find somebody, even if they're not specifically into horror movies, mm. that hasn't watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. I think with it's with Robert England's performance where he's able to be very intimidating but he's also like clearly enjoying it. Like in the remake, you've got Jackie Earl Haley who's got like, there's no the Fred Krueger in the remake has not has not got a single fun bone in his body. He's like yeah, all he's, serious. It's, and... it's very deadpan, isn't he? Yeah. Whereas in this one, he obviously is still doing terrible, horrible things, but he himself is enjoying the acts. And he's in on the joke. Yeah, he is. Like, and I don't imagine the Freddy of the remake doing the thing with the phone. Uh, no. You know, I don't imagine him. He's enjoying torturing these people. Yeah. Well, I am your 
because he's the powerful one in this situation because he is in control of the dreamscape where he's basically able to teleport around the space and take his victims wherever he wants them to go and he can he can laugh at himself though that's what i mean he's in on the joke in this film yeah. whereas in the remake it's just really deadpan isn't it he's not flamboyant no like the one in the like um robert england's version mm. yeah and they take the comedic elements way further in sequels. Like, we were watching clips in the documentary as well. Like, um, welcome to prime time, bitch. And things like that. And they'd really lean into it. But here, it's a really good... Like, he's not deadpan, but but there is still... There are he's still, still menacing and scary, isn't he? Yeah, and the physicality that he took inspiration from the Werner Herzog Nosferatu remake in the late 70s. And because the claw hand was so heavy, it kind of altered his posture on the left side of his body. So he's like, uh, he took the physicality of like a gunslinger, like ready to holster his weapon, basically. Um, and he, he makes that glove a real extension of his body as well. He really leans into it. And what sets Robert England apart in this particular role, though, is that you've got several actors who have played Michael Myers, you've got several actors who have played Jason Voorhees, etc. But for Freddy Krueger, he's played him for like eight or nine times from the original Nightmare on Elm Street up to Freddy vs. Jason. So that's eight or nine films, which is one of the most, like, it's the it's up there in terms of the list of actors who have played the same role multiple times on screen. Uh, but he also, he wasn't the only person to play Freddy in this film. I want to give shout out to stuntman uh, Anthony Ciceri, who played Freddy specifically when he's on fire. And it's yeah, this, that was incredible. Yeah, and he's, because he's set on fire by Nancy in the basement at the end of the film. And he's, he's top to bottom, just ablaze, chasing after Nancy. He goes to the top of the stairs, is knocked down the stairs, rolls down, gets back up and goes back up the stairs again. And This it, is all done in one take. Yes, and it's incredible. And they, they would put him out on for the fire extinguishers and he'd get back up and be like, oh, how was the shot? Dude's a madman, and I love it. <laughs> like, the massive like respect here. Um, IMDb says that he won Best Stunt of the Year for that scene. I've done some Googling, and I couldn't find what particular outlet or award that was or anything, but that's, I, I believe that. That's an incredible stunt. <laughs> he also played um, the Stay Puffed Mars Marshmallow Man in uh, Ghostbusters when he's on fire. <laughs> so this is his particular wheelhouse uh, for stunts. And, yeah, it's... it's, it's a brilliant scene. That's amazing you saying that. That made me remember the dream I had last night. What you dream? I dreamed about a guy in a dirty red and green sweater. Well, what about the fingernails? Oh, he scraped his fingernails along things. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something. Something he'd made himself. But they made a horrible sound. Nancy, you dreamed about the same creep I did. So going back to the way that Freddy looks, so it took three hours to get him into his makeup. Mm. Uh, that's not too bad, really. That's kind of, I would say, average yeah. for makeup prosthetics um, in films. Um, but the original concept was that um, Freddy was supposed to be a lot more gruesome with like teeth showing through the flesh over mm. the jaw. Um, and pus running from the sores um, and parts of the skull showing through the head. 
But um, makeup artist David B. Miller argued that an actor couldn't be convincingly made up that way and a puppet would be hard to film and wouldn't blend well with live actors. So these ideas were um, eventually abandoned and they went for more of the... Um, not subtle, mm. but um, more of the burn victim type makeup. I mean, it's still it's still um, gruesome and everything, isn't it? Yeah, and because they film it in such harsh shadows, and you very rarely get a good look at his face, but the the silhouette cuts and the the way it's like the face is particularly shaped, and just where you see muscle, where you see bone and skin. Um, it makes it, it's really striking. It's a really great look. So David B. Miller based Freddie's um, disfigurement on photographs of burn victims he saw in the UCLA Medical Center. Mm. So there is a realism to it. So, um, you know, there, there would have been a realistic reference image for it, but of course it has been hyped up for um, Freddy Krueger's character. Yeah. There's a couple of awkward effects where i think it it does um age the film a little bit like where freddy's uh extending his arms across the alleyway and they look like he's, he's got two um what do you call them those instruments oh um oh my god what are they called a accordion accordion yeah he just looks like his arms been replaced by two accordions uh like that's that has aged a little bit but then you still get incredible shots like when I think it's um, Nina takes the uh, just rips the skin off his face <laughs> and there's like the skeleton underneath and that that was done in one take and it's just like a um, a head sculpt like covered in KY jelly and yeah so it's a it's a um, so it was a puppet of um, Robert England as Freddy Krueger and um, instead of gluing the prosthetic on top of the um, puppet. They just attached it with KY jelly so that it could easily be ripped off, mm. ready for that take. So that's that's really cool to know. Yeah, like for every shot or effect that I think has aged in the in the many decades, you've got like twenty others that just really hold up and just look so great. But... Yeah, for me, I think the only one that kind of ages it badly is the one at the end where. The mannequin. Where no, where he vanishes. Oh yeah, yeah. He, um, he becomes like becomes like that computer graphic thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and of course the uh, the man the mannequin <laughs> in yeah. the, at the very end through the window. <laughs> I mean, I think they had to do it in like one take, didn't yeah. they? And that was that. So fair enough, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's not very realistic when you look back at it. Nah. <laughs> A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. We took gasoline. We poured it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. I even took his knives. Because this is a film that has been, like, 
analyzed to to Helen back basically in in the many like in the past forty years. I think there's there's a lot of interesting subtext in the film where you get the the like the sins of the past the past generation you've got the sins of the parents who have kept this secret from the kids of elm street and now it's coming back literally in their dreams to haunt them and kill them and, and take them all out and it's this idea in 1980s you've got reagan's america this like faux patriotism because ronald reagan was uh was an actor he was uh, he was in western films cowboy films this this myth of um, american heroism and he wanted to bring back like the the patriotism from the 1950s into the 80s and of course you got the filmmakers like toby hooper and john carpenter who see this as like a betrayal of everything that they stood for they protested vietnam they protested all of this stuff that ronald reagan is now bringing back bigger and better than ever in the 1980s so you've got this idea now that freddy krueger represents the sins of the parents who have all the the brutality of the parents who which are now affecting the children and the generation who now are now going to be suffering because of what has happened like that's completely away from them wow doesn't that sound familiar yeah it's, it's weird it's almost as if like this film maybe... it's almost as if it's based in reality exactly. yeah it's almost as if um we're just doing 30 or 40 year cycles and oh my god the next president is going to be a bush again isn't he Oh boy, politics and horror, never. I've, <laughs> I have opinions on that. Horror has always been and always mm. will be political. Mm. But um, going back to more fun trivia, we've got the, um, uh, there's a scene where they're watching The Evil Dead by Sam Raimi in in the film and that was done because in sam raimi's the evil dead there's a poster in the basement next to the book of the dead of the uh, hills, the hills of eyes so that was like oh he put my film poster in his film i'm gonna have the characters <laughs> watching that film now so it's this sort of like circular little it really is just a masterpiece this film isn't it mm. like you just can't explain how much you love it can you like yeah it's it it holds up on like just the way it was made the performances like the themes the concepts the universality of dreams and a, a serial killer that stalks people in the dreams and you know it's just a really creepy idea generally of oh you had the same dream that i had and then you wake up and you've got the slashed pajamas of where he tried to get you it's really really clever and like, we were, I mean, what is more scary than something that's able to kill you in your dreams as well as eventually when you're awake too? Yeah, where you're meant to you're meant to be safe and secure in your own subconscious. But when we were watching the documentaries on the Blu-ray, like you were just every other like snippet, you were like, "This this is genius. This man, this man, Wes Craven's a genius." Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I was like enthralled upon how they made this film. I just. Mm think it's it's given me a whole new i knew it was a great film anyway because i really enjoyed it anyway and i knew the like about some of the obviously i've seen the makeup and stuff um but i didn't realize just how much was practical in the film mm. and how they achieved that and it was just incredible and like his thought process on how he created the character like this really scared him when he was a kid so he took that element that mm. he read about this in this thing and so he threw that element into it. It it was just it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah. I love it when people. It's special, isn't yeah. it? You when somebody can be like that. Yeah, yeah. You, you take this like this mosaic of things that you've seen in culture or in your own personal life, and you combine it together into something completely new and enduring. 
Yeah. But one thing that did not endure, though, was the uh, was the location for Freddy's iconic boiler room. Uh, they filmed that in the basement of uh, Lincoln Heights Jail in Los Angeles. Um, and they filmed there because they wanted somewhere that looked very old-fashioned and somewhere that looked very run-down with, like, rusted pipes and it looked very dilapidated. So they, it's a great location. They did yeah. a real good job finding it. But shortly after production, the, it was uh, condemned because apparently there were high level of asbestos in in the location. Yeah, um, try so, not to work with it. <laughs> yeah, so they, they've been... Um, breathing in asbestos for about a week or two in order to get all of those scenes so you know the guerrilla filmmaking it's not uh it's not all romance it's not all romance and uh getting line producers to max out the credit cards is anyway it? we we deviated a lot from the plot so oh yeah of course <laughs> we, yeah, we just tina we, yeah we, we just let we just let everything run away from us don't we so um it's because we got excited we did <laughs> so tina is being is being killed. Rod is watching her being killed. There's an explosion of blood everywhere. She's mm. writhing about on the ceiling. Incredible, incredible scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's eventually arrested for her murder. Um, as Nancy and Glenn um, hear all this screaming and manage to get into the room and see blood and Tina dead. Yeah, and the windows open. Rod is just bolted, like understandably. Yeah. Like he he thinks this this looks very very bad for me, doesn't it? And he's eventually um, killed in prison uh, because Freddy haunts through his nightmares again and somehow manipulates his bedding while he's in the jail cell and he's he's hung uh, by the neck and killed. Yeah, that's quite a sad one, that. Yeah, it's particular. It's very grim, especially when you've got Nancy who is trying to find a way to combat Freddy. Because it, it's not, she's not someone who's trying to look her way into into taking him down. She's really thinking this through and plotting it. And she's using everything she's learning through these experiences going into the dream world to try and bring him down. When she's asleep in the psychiatric like facility for where they're monitoring her dreams, she ends up pulling out um, Fred's uh, fedora hat. Uh, so basically, if I'm if I can keep a hold of him when I'm woken up, I might be able to bring him into a, the real world, and then we can kill him. And after Glenn is brutally, brutally killed in a geyser <laughs> of blood, and she tries to communicate, she tries to tell her dad, so I'll c- come on, knock on the door in twenty minutes, and she's like, and he's like, yeah, whatever. Whatever, just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. You've you've been awake for an entire week, and eventually he he has someone on guard like outside the house saying, you know, just give us a shout if anything happens. There's like an explosion in the house. There's <laughs> screaming and yelling, and then he's like, I think I should get the lift the lieutenant. He's like, oh, do you think? <laughs> uh, so... oh, oh, Daddy, help me, please. Maybe I better go tell the lieutenant. <laughs> not the police department who takes him down in the end it's nancy rigging home alone style traps and you know a hammer suspended from the ceiling um she throws like alcohol at him sets him on fire knocks him down the stairs a load of times um it makes me think like wes craven should have done the home alone films absolutely (laughs) absolutely and eventually he's he kills um her mother or he just has her, like, pinned down to the bed, and she's taken to hell, basically. 
Freddy Krueger comes back, but Nancy's no longer afraid of him, turns her back on him, and he becomes a little blue pixely effect and just collapses. Um, and we get this really weird ending, which I personally don't think it works, but I want to know your thoughts on it, where... I like the ending that they have. Yeah, where it turns out, oh, she's actually the mother's actually alive, and she's just not going to drink anymore. Um, yeah, but then he comes back and gets her. He does, yeah. So they get into the car. All of her friends are alive. It turns out, oh, it's a Freddy Krueger coloured car that's going to trap them in and drive off into the fog. And I think out of all the potential endings, this is definitely the best one. Yes, uh, the original ending was going to be that she would get on the school bus and drive away into the fog, but the the producers were like, no, we 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 think we've got something special here. We want something that could open up the sequels, so we need to make it open ended. And I think if because this is just emblematic of the process that they had to go through to make this film, where it's very quick, they had to really rush their way through it. And I think if there was maybe one scene between Freddy becoming a blue particle effect and her getting in the car with her friends, if there was just something to let that, like, victory settle for even just a scene before it being taken away from her at the end, I think it could have worked. But the mannequin just being sucked (laughs) through the doorway. Um, I like it ironically. I don't know if it works, though. Oh, I like it. It's... it's, it's a it's, fun ending, uh, yeah. But and it it did actually end up getting the sequels that the producer was after, so you know th- that worked out, and the franchise is all the better for it, I guess. But yeah, it's it's a weird ending, and I think with the deleted ones and the amended endings that we saw on the Blu-ray, it was, in my opinion, the best of a bad bunch. <laughs> to the credits you've got the the creepy girls in the white dresses who are singing the freddy krueger nursery yeah. line One, two, Freddy's coming mm. for you. um <laughs> which was something that was apparently invented by uh, heather langenkamp's boyfriend at the time oh. on set so that was the that was the creation of the nursery rhyme wow mm. it's really good isn't it though <laughs> yeah. it's a very spooky spooky one mm. and the the, the success of this film was almost immediate. It became a big success at the box office. There were it was it was a blockbuster in the, in the horror scene. Later on that year for Halloween, there were kids who were dressing up as Freddy Krueger, and you've got Amanda Weiss who played Tina. She's um, um, uh, giving out candy to kids, and one of them is dressed up as Freddy Krueger, and she's like, "Oh, I I was in the film. I played Tina," and the kid didn't believe her. And because this was New Line Cinema's first cinematic success as a company, they decided to make it an entire franchise, uh, especially with that open-ended ending, uh, where they... How many films did they have? We had uh, Freddy's Freddy's Revenge, Dream Warriors, Dream Master, Dream Child, Final Nightmare, New Nightmare, Freddy vs. Jason. So yeah, this became a big franchise for New Line Cinema. And this was the, the film that really put them on the map as a company. And New Line Cinema is affectionately nicknamed the house that Freddy built because Freddy Krueger basically made New Line Cinema. And 
it's kind of weird that maybe without Nightmare on Elm Street, we wouldn't have films such as, uh, you know, Final Destination. We wouldn't have the Blade films. We wouldn't have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> we wouldn't have Critters. Uh, we wouldn't have Seven. Uh, and also we wouldn't have uh, films like Austin Powers or The Lord of the Rings. Um, and I'm sure that that's the only time those two films will be mentioned in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, because New Line is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers, went on to become one of the biggest film like franchises of the 21st century so far. And that started with New Line, which started cinematically with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So without Freddy, you wouldn't have Middle Earth, everyone. So, you know, kids be grateful. <laughs> what an icon as well yeah and it, it it definitely stands the test of time doesn't it mm. um i personally think the third one is the scariest yeah i think it's got the best kills at least Dream it's where my fear of nuns comes from no. like in horror films like she <laughs> is like terrifying in that film yeah anyway that's yeah. for another day. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, to checking out uh, Final Nightmare, which uh, when we get our 3D glasses on, we can see Freddy's glove really, like like it's really coming at us. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking out the rest of this franchise uh, later on down the line and just how much can be traced back to, to this film, including like Johnny Depp's career as well. And of course, Wes Craven would go on to reinvent the slasher genre again in the 90s uh, with Scream as well. Also an incredible film. Uh, yeah, that's another great horror franchise as well that, that he started. And uh, unfortunately, Wes Craven did pass away at the age of 76 uh, in 2015 as well, just leaving behind an incredible legacy. Yeah. It was a very sad day. So, Yaz, it's now time to spin the wheel and find out what we're going to be talking about next week on the next episode of Ooh. Monster Monday. <laughs> this is another film that Yaz got me for Christmas on Blu-ray that I'm need to watch and i'm really looking forward to checking out yes what are we talking about next monday train to busan peninsula so yeah i have no idea if this is any good i've heard good things but i've not actually watched it myself yet we've got the blu-ray on the shelf so yeah if for those of you who want to know our thoughts on the first train to busan film we did that uh, episode a few months ago, so check that one out. It was quite distressing. But... Oh, yeah, I apologise again. Well, actually, no, I don't apologise. Yeah, feel things. Yes. Yeah. I have a lot of emotions. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about Train to Busan uh, Peninsula next Monday. But in the meanwhile, Yaz, where can people stalk our nightmares and our dreams and the hellscape that is social media? Where can people find us there? Because as we all I know, t Twitter is just a living nightmare scape, isn't it? <laughs> it can also be very nice. Um, Twitter at MonsterMonPod, Instagram at MonsterMondayPod, and Facebook is the same as Instagram. Folks, I hope you... Uh, folks, I hope you haven't, I guess, died halfway through that sentence. Freddie got Freddy. me. Freddie got me. Um, <laughs> so, folks, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Monster Monday podcast. If you haven't already, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice and Preferably subscribing. Preferably a nice one. Preferably a nice one. Um, but if you, if you leave a bad one, that's fine. Just be aware that Freddie is going to get you. 
Um, but anyway, please um, please consider subscribing. Tell your friends if they are horror aficionados as well. My name, or even if they're not, just yeah. tell your friends. Yeah, just, just tell your friends and don't tell them anything and just, just let them listen to fun horror, t- horror discussions as well, unprepared. So, my name is Will. <laughs> my name is Yaz. And thanks for listening to the Monster Monday podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.